They definitely do. And we are live. So good morning, good afternoon. Thank you for joining us. This is Dyslexia Coffee Talk. I am your host, Ashley, and today's guest is Natalie Wexler. She is the author of The Knowledge Gap and co-author of The Writing Revolution with Judith Hockman. Thank you for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me, Ashley. I'm delighted to be here. I'm so, I'm honestly, I'm so excited that you're, you're here. The Knowledge Gap is one of my all-time favorite books because you give so much. It's not, it's different from the other books that we read in our community, you know, because they tend to focus on like one aspect, whether it's this, you know, the history of, of language, the specific, uh, talking about how the brain learns to read the different processing ways. Sally Shaywitz's book, which just talks about, you know, dyslexia as a whole, you give history, you know, you, you lay out more than a hundred years worth of U.S. educational American or American educational history. And you talk about the progression of theories and how things have changed over the different decades as the cultures changed, the politics changed, everything changed. And I found that to be incredibly fascinating. Well, I'm really glad to hear that. I mean, I do have a background as a historian, which I'm sure influenced the way I approach this, but I always want to know where things have come from. I think it's very hard to understand them if all you're seeing is what's going on today. And I remember I was asking somebody who was sort of acting as a mentor to me and, and you know, it's very important helping me figure out what was going on today. But I, I said to him, so where did all this come from? And he said, where did it come from? I don't know. <laughs> so, who cares? But I'm very glad to hear that some people do care as I do. Why? Well, but it, okay. So you can't be a dyslexia advocate without being a literacy advocate. That's at least what myself and others have found, right? And because you provide the history, you provide such insight into so many of the drivers and what education currently is today, you know, the people that have voices, the people that are influencing certain decisions, whether they should be or not. And, you know, that's a little, I'm going to leave that off to the side. <laughs> the evolution of, you know, modern educational thought, I think is critical to understand how, how did we get here? And, you have to understand how we got here to understand the the politics at play and, you know, all of that, because we, myself and others, we've had conversations about entering from a more, more of a literacy aspect than a dyslexia aspect. And I enjoyed that piece, especially because I was like, okay, the field is more daunting than people may think that it is if they're just focused on dyslexia and not looking at the entire landscape. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think the, you know, the dyslexia community has been um, enormously valuable in keeping alive this issue of, hey, we're not teaching decoding in a way right. that works for all kids. In fact, it does not work for many and maybe really most of them. I think what the dyslexia community has been less tuned into are the, the, the comprehension problems, um, because that has a lot to do with lack of background knowledge and lack of academic vocabulary. And, you know, frankly, the, the parents who have had the resources to fight for their kids' rights to learn to read have generally been more highly educated, 
um, and have had more resources. And so their kids, they may have had decoding problems, but their problems were not so much on the academic knowledge and vocabulary side because they were able to pick that up largely at home and also their schools were probably doing more to build academic knowledge, um, which un unfortunately, you know, you find less of that in schools that serve the kids who need it most. But it's been great to see that recently, um, I think the dyslexia community has really started to embrace this idea that, hey, you know, we also do need to pay attention to the comprehension side and to ensuring that all kids not only get good decoding instruction, but also get the kind of curricula that are gonna build their academic knowledge and vocabulary so they can succeed in high school and beyond. Definitely, and I, I liked how you talked about um, when you were, specifically you were talking about the current reading curriculums that are in American schools and how more and more time is cut out for reading and language arts at the sacrifice of other subjects, science, um, history, um, you know, like social studies, I know is taught in my district, but they don't get history until high school. And the interesting thing to me is I'm looking at my um, 13 year old child going, when was the civil war? And he, you know, he thinks the civil war and the American revolution are, were the same thing. And so I'm like, okay, so apparently I have to teach you history. <laughs> you know, yeah, you're the second person recently who's, you know, who's obviously knows about history. He's told me that surprised to find how little their child knows. And that is really, I mean, it's partly a problem of just, we're not teaching it and, and um, you know, often we don't really teach it until middle, until high school. Yeah. Um, but we also, when we do teach it, I mean, it's, it, we don't always teach it in a way that works. Right. Uh, and especially if you start at the high school level, um, you know, high school textbooks assume that kids know about like when the, the American Revolution was or when the Civil War was. They just, you know, they don't start with, okay, we had a war of independence, you know, and this. And so if you're going to assume knowledge that kids don't have, the knowledge that you're trying to inculcate is unlikely to stick because it has nothing to stick to. You know, it's been said knowledge is like Velcro. It's best to other related knowledge. Mm -hmm. So if that knowledge isn't there, the new knowledge, the background knowledge isn't there, the new knowledge may well not stick. Yeah. And I like how you talk about that too from writing instruction. That you can't just have, you, you can't just be writing about your experiences. You need to be writing about content in order to become a well-rounded writer. Um, and I, dysgraphia is a major passion of mine. And I'm trying to shed more and more light on dysgraphia as well as writing instruction and why writing instruction is so critical for our children and why we need to be doing writing instruction in conjunction with reading instruction. And I loved, I think one of my favorite quotes from your book was writing is its own language. Yeah, I mean, I think I might've said something where like writing is like a second language. Writing yes. A language <laughs> of writing. I mean, it's, it's, you're basically the same idea, but you know, um, kids tend to write the way they talk uh, and it doesn't work on the page because for one thing, when I'm talking to you, as you could say, I mean, I have all sorts of, and gestures and inflections and you know I can say incomplete sentences but you still know what I mean because there are all these other things going on if you don't know what I mean you can say wait a minute could you explain that but when you're dealing with a page the, the written page 
you know, you, you need to be much clearer if the reader is going to be able to understand it. You need to know when to end a sentence, for example, and, and how to structure your thoughts. And we just haven't taught those things explicitly. And the result is, you know, we have a nation of really pretty lousy writers at this point. Um, uh, you know, one of the things I'm, I'm sort of working on now, uh, writing something about is, uh, you know, the, the NAEP, the National Assessment of Educational Progress, these tests that are given pretty much every couple of years in reading and, and math. Well, there's also supposed to be one for writing. The last time, well, it, the, the, the most recent results we have from, are from 2011. And the next administration of that test is not scheduled until 2030. So that's almost 20 years uh, it, it's a little more complicated than they, they did give it in 2017, but because of technical issues, they switched devices. They're probably not going to report those results. So it's not that writing tests tell us how to go about teaching writing, but they are kind of a barometer of the problem. And right. it's a huge problem. I mean, those results from 2011 show that only about a quarter of eighth and 12th graders were deemed proficient or above in writing. And that's worse than reading. It's about a third of proficient or above in reading. So, and we just act like, well, you know, they'll pick it up. We don't really spend much time figuring out how to teach it. We don't even research the best way to teach it very much as compared to the best way to teach reading. There's very little research on writing. And it is important, not just because it's, in a, you know, it's important to be able to communicate in writing, especially email and, but it is also a key to things like reading comprehension. Mm -hmm. If you learn how to use the, the, this, this second language, this complex vocabulary and syntax of written language that really does not appear in spoken language, like subordinate clauses and the passive voice and words like despite and moreover, if you use them in your learned or taught to use them in your own writing, you're in a much better position to understand them when you encounter them in reading. And it carries over to all sorts of things, it carries over to speaking um, and just to thinking in a more sort of analytical and logical way. Because when you write, if you're doing it well, you are forced to figure out, you know, what, what is the main idea here and what are the connections between these ideas? It works much better than these, you know, we try to teach those things through reading comprehension skills and strategies doesn't really work that well there, especially if they're disconnected from any particular content, which they usually are. Oh, we're just teaching the skill. Don't worry about what the content is. When you're writing, it, it's very obvious that you cannot disconnect those things from the content. If you don't understand the content, you're not going to be able to write about it. So um, I, you know, I really think that writing instruction has the potential, you know, as the, the title of the book, The Writing Revolution, indicates, to really revolutionize education, not the way that we've been teaching it, but we have to ground writing in the content of the core curriculum, not a separate writing curriculum. And we need to start at the sentence level if that's what kids need, no matter what grade level they're in, because writing is the hardest thing we ask kids to do in school. And if and when we ask them to write at length, it makes it even harder. Yeah. So if we want them to have the, the cognitive capacity to not to understand, to, to, to learn how to write and also understand what they're writing about. We need to modulate that heavy cognitive load that writing imposes on them. And the simplest way to do that is by starting 
at the sentence level rather than asking kindergartners to write five paragraph essays or you know just to write about your favorite book go on just express yourself find your writerly voice um for most kids that really doesn't work yeah it didn't work for mine <laughs> at all well, he's, um, not alone. <laughs> oh, he's not definitely but um Everything that you said is is so important, and it, I find as an advocate, it's also a difficult thing to communicate because there is such a lack of understanding about the education of writing, just like you just said. And um, as an advocate within the dyslexia community, one of the things that I, I've been troubled with as well is, you know, since William Van Cleve's passing, I feel like there's this this gap within our community of somebody who really understood the writing process to the level that he did, you know, somebody's not kind of stepped up and stepped into his shoes to sort of like fill that gap. Um, and, you know, I really want to interview Judith Hockman too, because I want to understand how she came about developing the writing revolution with you and, all of the things that you've said about the schools that she was working in and et cetera, we, ha we have to get more people to understand how the writing process works. And I find that that's such a difficult discussion to have because people just don't understand. Yeah, well, yeah. and as you may know, I mean, Judith Hockman developed these writing strategies that are, well, that are the method, writing revolution method, while working with kids with language-based learning disabilities, you know, at, at a at school called the Windward School in New York. Um, so that's where the method started. But as with lots of other things, you know, it turns out it doesn't just work for kids who've been diagnosed with dyslexia or dysgraphia. It really right. works for all kids. Right. Um, so, you know, I think she was, it, it's interesting. I don't know that she and, and William Van Cleve ever crossed paths. I, she, we, we both, she and I have both now read his book, but we were really were not familiar with his work. And there's definitely some overlap there. Um, and I hope that, you know, that the writing revolution and Judy Hockman can, you know, fill that role for the dyslexia community and, and others, because I think, as I said, there's, there's overlap. And I would say, I mean, there are also are differences. Um, right. And, I think that some of those differences make the writing revolution method quite powerful. I mean, one is really emphasizing that it's important to embed these writing activities in the content of the curriculum. To me, at least that didn't come through so clearly in William Van Cleve's book. Um, and the other point I'd make is, and it sort of goes along with that one, is that there are different kinds of, of powerful sentence level writing activities. The only one that's really been researched and, you know, the researchers said, yes, it's, it's effective is sentence combining. Um, and, and that's, you know, been somewhat popular and, and it's, it, it can help with the, um, you know, figuring out how to construct a complex sentence, but it is, um, it's not a knowledge building sentence level activity because what you could do is you give people or kids like three sentences and ask them to combine them into one longer sentence, but you're giving them all the information they need to do that. It can be embedded in the content of the curriculum, but they don't have to remember anything. They don't have to recall anything. And that's how where the knowledge building aspect comes in. So some of the other, I mean, we do sentence combining as part of the 
writing revolution method as is scrambled sentences, which is similar in that it can help with those mechanical sentence construction skills, but it doesn't really build knowledge of the content. In contrast, even a really simple writing activity that's part of the writing revolution method that does build knowledge is uh, fixing sentence fragments. So, so one of the basic but really most difficult things is to help kids understand the difference between a fragment of a sentence, like that's just a phrase, and a complete sentence. And giving them the definition often doesn't help. So in the way the writing revolution method approaches this is to have, first of all, have students, you give them a list of unpunctuated groups of words, and they have to figure out which ones are the fragments, the incomplete sentences, and which ones are the sentences, complete sentences. And for the, if it's a complete sentence, they have to capitalize and punctuate it correctly. So that's, but for the sentence fragments, they have to turn them into complete sentences. And to do that, they need to supply information. And if the information that they're supplying comes from content that they're learning, that activity of retrieving that information from long-term memory and putting it into their own words in a sentence is a very powerful way to build and deepen knowledge. Um, it, it's, you know, it has to do with cognitive load theory and, but it just, this has been shown, you know, that, that, that is, there are different words for it in cognitive psychology, but essentially the way to really get things both into long-term memory and make them more accessible when you need them is to practice retrieving them from long-term memory and, and, and putting them into your own words. And that's what even simple sentence level activities can do. Yeah. I think that that's so powerful and, and so misunderstood again as well. Um, I, you know, I remember from my own education and I'm, I'm 48, I've lived in Texas and I've lived in Georgia. Um, both states while I was in high school as well. And, you know, I was, my grandmother had a master's in education and she always encouraged my writing from the second that I could pick up a pen. And so I loved creating stories and things like that. You know, I, I was, I thought that I was a good writer until I got to a school in Atlanta <laughs> and I couldn't write a five paragraph closed essay to save my life. And that was a year long struggle with a very tough teacher who pushed my knowledge well past my comfort level. You know, she kept prodding me and, you know, pushing and pushing and pushing and challenging me. And when I finally got an A on a paper from her, I thought that it was just, you know, she actually made me stand up in front of class because all of my classmates knew how badly she had been torturing me for a year. And she said, look what she just did. She was so proud of me. And then I get back to Texas and I was accused of cheating because I knew how to write a five paragraph closed essay. <laughs> and I had to prove that I actually knew how to do it. Yeah. Versus well, the inverse. Sorry, go ahead. I mean, it, I think that this, you know, we have had this approach especially in elementary school of just writing personal narratives, um, not worrying too much about conventions. And, and first of all, writing personal narrative is probably the easiest form of writing. I'm not saying it's always easy. I mean, I've written personal essays and they can be really, you know, to do it well is 
but you're writing about something you really know. You're writing about your own experience. So you're not juggling those other things that you know you're also trying to understand while you're writing. And you're not constructing an argument usually. I mean, you're just right. relating your experience and your thoughts. And constructing an argument is much harder. Um, and we really, you know, the Common Core sort of recognized that and it changed the requirements uh, at, at the elementary level so that in addition to personal narrative or narrative, kids are also supposed to be writing persuasive or argumentative essays and also just explanatory things. But, and they give examples of what this should look like, but it, the Common Core did not tell teachers how to get kids to do this. They didn't provide them a roadmap. Right. Um, and so, you know, and, and most teachers don't learn anything about how to teach writing in their training, in their pre-service training or their professional development. So what you get is, you know, and, and the Common Core actually sort of has encouraged this. Um, asking kindergartners, I mean, one of the exemplars that in, the, in an appendix to the Common Core standards, one of the writing exemplars for the kindergarten level is a little essay about my favorite book, my favorite book. So it's, it's saying, this is what you should do. You should just ask kids to write, to express themselves um, and, and just their own opinions about things. And that doesn't equip kids to write the kind of thing, writing they'll be expected to do, we hope, in high school or in college. Or, you know, it's not just about high school and college. I mean, if you are disputing charge on your credit card bill or whatever, it really helps to be able to construct an argument and communicate it in a way that is easily understandable. And we just haven't equipped people to do that. Agree. And um, so, you know, again, in college, I was pushed by my professors to go beyond, you know, to put myself out there. You, you're not only making an argument, but you're kind of making a hypothesis and you're arguing your hypothesis, if, if you will, across various course content. And that was necessary in order to do well within the class from the written papers. But I was also a creative writing major. And so I especially love the portion of your book when you talk about the writer's workshop. And I never thought about it until your book, how you were talking about, you know, the writer's workshop for adults. And then I was like, oh my gosh, I, you know, I did three years of that in college because I was a creative writing major. And that's, that was the birth of that year. Absolutely right. And that's what that is. That's never going to work to teach a child how to write. Why would anybody think that? Well, yeah, <laughs> you know, the history of that is interesting because I just wrote something about this. So I, I was reviewing it, but, um, I mean, I, I have both taken creative writing workshops and I have taught them. And, and I, I mean, I was like reading this and I was like, this sounds familiar, but it's for like adults, you know, graduate right. students. And, um, but it really, you can trace it back to Lucy Calkins, uh, who is very popular in the Northeast. I don't know how much she's penetrated schools in Texas. Oh, she has the whole state. How oh, does she? Well, I mean, <laughs> there seems to be some reconsideration of whether, at least on the reading side of whether her approach makes sense. But I think we also need to reconsider on the writing side, whether her approach makes sense. And if you read her early books describing you know, how she came up with this approach, 
she herself was an aspiring writer and, you know, had this experience of writing workshops, finding her voice. And I think with the, the best of intentions, you know, I mean, she's very idealistic as many teachers are. She wanted kids to have this experience too. And to feel that it was very important to her for them to, to feel that their stories mattered. And this was one reason that she said that she'd be writing about their personal experience and going into detail. And, you know, I mean, I, I you know, when I was reading this, I was like, yes, I've heard this. Like when I did like a summer writing workshop at Iowa, I heard this, take a small moment and expand it with sensory detail and all of that. Um, and just a personal anecdote. So I didn't put the pieces together until I was really working on the book. But when my son, who's now in his 30s, was in third grade, he had a teacher who was an early disciple of Lucy Coggins. And I don't remember, I didn't remember the name, but I remember her saying, oh, yes, I took this workshop at Columbia Teachers College, which is, you know, where Lucy Coggins was. And my, my son was already in third grade, actually quite a good writer. You know, he just had that knack. Um, and, but but he was being asked to choose a topic, a personal topic, and write it and rewrite it and go deeper. And this is a kid who never wanted even to tell me about what he did at school that day. He did not want to write about himself, you know? Right. So it made absolutely no sense. And actually what we ended up doing since he didn't want to write about himself, my father had died recently and I thought, I didn't know what was coming down the pike. So I said, well, maybe you could write about grandpa and his childhood. And I had a few facts about my father's childhood, but not a whole lot. And so he kept inventing stuff. And my father had been born quite premature in the 20s, you know, and so he had eyesight problems and he had, you know, a, a, a club foot and he had to spend a lot of time in bed after surgery. And, and so my son was writing about how horrible this must have been. And also by the time my son knew him, my father was really hard of hearing. So he ended up describing like Helen Keller as a vegetable. <laughs> this, and I just remember thinking like, I don't get this. Like, what is the point of this? <laughs> my, my son did the same thing. Um, his teacher sent me an email one day and she said, I just have to ask if this is true. So they were supposed to write about something they did over the weekend. And um, in his, in he, he's in second grade, so he's eight years old. And so he writes this paper about, um, so my husband and I left and left him home alone for the entire weekend. <laughs> and some bad men tried to break into the house and he chased him out with knives. And then they got into basically a, a big 18 wheeler truck and he threw some rocks at the truck and he hit the truck and it exploded and they died. And his teacher's like, did any of this actually happen? And I'm like, you actually have to ask the question. <laughs> you should get credit for imagination. But, uh, I, you know, one of the tenets of, the, I think she may have modified this, but originally kids were not allowed to write fiction. It had to be personal experience. You know, I mean, she's all about like them finding their voices. And, but she also could be pretty rigid about what it was she wanted them to do. <laughs> yeah, he did. He actually did not get a good grade on the paper because it didn't abide by the assignment. And I ended up arguing that because I was like, my son's just like yours. He doesn't like to tell me anything. You know, how was your day? Fine. That's the end of the discussion. <laughs> but 
you know, I was like, can we, can, can we applaud the kid for the imagination that went into this? Yeah. I mean, I, I, some kids like to make stuff up. Other kids like to write about themselves. Other kids actually, what I've been told by a lot of teachers is, um, who've, you know, tried actually teaching content instead of focusing on these largely illusory comprehension skills and strategies where you're just jumping from one topic to another and kids don't have enough information about any one topic to actually write about it. They've told me that once kids have information to, they want, you know, that they're learning in school, they want to write about it. They go from being reluctant readers and hating writers and hating writing to being, they, they just, can't wait to tell you all about what they've learned. I mean, kids really like feeling like experts. Mm -hmm. So one of the problems with our approach to reading is that it is also kind of, you know, made it very difficult for us to teach writing. Because, you know, I, you know, if you're not a kid who wants to make up stories or write about yourself, you may be given like, okay, here's, this is what literally one teacher told me, here's three paragraphs in, about insects. Okay, now you write, an essay about your favorite insect, but they don't know enough about insects to write anything about what their favorite insect is. She was very skeptical of one of these content rich curricula that are now available. But one of the things that convinced, I mean, she thought, oh, you know, my third graders are not gonna be interested in the Vikings or ancient Rome. It's so remote from their experience. And that's what a lot of teachers assume. Yeah. But she, it, she was, I mean, one of the things that converted her was that they were very interested. They were incredibly engaged. But one of the other things that convinced her was their writing. Suddenly they were really enthusiastic about writing and they had a lot to say. And these particular kids didn't need a whole lot of, I mean, you know, some kids, you just give them something to say and they'll more or less figure it out. And many of these kids apparently did. So, um. Yes. And I love, I love everything that you described about content rich curriculum. And I, because that's something that I grew up under, you know, from my own experiences, I definitely couldn't agree more. One of the things too, and I think, I mean, I don't think you do talk about this in your book is how sometimes I don't want to use the word inappropriateness because that's not the right word, but they're switching from one aspect of writing or comprehension content to another, like, let's talk about summary. Let's talk about, um, you know, these different aspects. I remember um, I was attending an IEP meeting when my son was in fifth grade and the, the assignment had really troubled me and my son did not understand it at all. And so I went into the IEP meeting, not happy about this assignment. And so I started asking a lot of questions. I already knew what the answers were, but, you know, I wanted them to answer me. So they're answering my questions and, you know, they, they got to the end of their explanation. And I said, why are you teaching deconstruction in the fifth grade? That's college level content. Why are you trying to teach deconstruction to a fifth grader who you've never actually followed our state standards on how to teach writing to begin with? And you've done this to all of them. I don't understand the point of this. And even the whole room shook their heads and said, yes, it's not grade level appropriate, but it's part of our curriculum. And I was like, this is insane. <laughs> it was, I mean, it's been a few years now. And of course we've had COVID and I don't have the greatest memory, but it was basically, you know, you know the deconstruction is taking a book. 
I'm going to read Lord of the Rings and I'm going to talk about how Saruman is actually Hitler and how, you know, uh, uh, who is it? Strider is, um, you know, sort of the, the allies going in, going in, you know, the leader of the allies going into battle and how the entire Lord of the Rings series is actually a deconstruction of World War one and two, and, you know, that's deconstruction is take, you know, what is the actual meaning behind it from a, from an economic, from a social, from a cultural aspect. And that was basically what the assignment was, not that like extreme, of course, but that was the core of what the assignment was. And I was dumbfounded and, you know, they were surprised that I understood what deconstruction was. And I was like, hello, English major. Of course, I know what deconstruction is. <laughs> yeah, um, well, I think there is, you know, that sounds extreme. But when I, you know, I spent a lot of fair amount of time in elementary classrooms when I was doing the research for the book. And I did see, you know, things that were both overestimating and underestimating what kids can do. So yeah. for example, in, you know, I followed a couple of different early elementary classrooms through a school year. Well, actually three, as you know, if you've read the book. But, but the idea was um, to compare a classroom using the standard approach to teaching reading comprehension, you know, skills and strategies, let's practice finding the main idea, let's practice making inferences. And another classroom that was using one of these more recently developed, you know, content rich knowledge building curricula and in the uh, skills and strategy classroom, I mean, the, the, the first one, which was a first grade classroom, you know, it was very, what the teacher was trying to do was very abstract. She was trying to do things like get kids to understand the difference, conceptual difference between a caption and a subtitle. And th those kids really want to know what's going on in the, in the pictures. What, you know, why is that, what is that shark eating? But she was, in, with the best of intentions, was like, no, no, we, we're, we're focusing on the concept of a cabbage. And they, you know, it was very abstract. They weren't getting that. And they weren't getting, I mean, one day I walked in and she was saying, okay, now is fantasy a subgenre of fiction or nonfiction? And, you know, I mean, these were sixth grade, uh, six-year-olds. The other classroom, I mean, it, you know, they were thinking abstractly, but they had grist for the mill. They had information because they, the, the curriculum consisted largely of teacher, the teacher reading aloud stories about, I mean, sometimes they were not stories, but, but engaging narratives about all sorts of things about history and science. And so they could do things like, you know, they were learning about ancient Greece and they'd already learned about ancient China and India and Mesopotamia. I mean, they'd been getting this curriculum since kindergarten. And so the teacher could ask something, you know, that called for fairly abstract thinking, like how was ancient Greek civilization different from other, how was it unique? Because unique was the one of the vocabulary words she was working. How was it unique as compared to other ancient civilizations we've studied? And their hands were going up, this was second grade. And most of these kids, you know, in both of these classrooms, these kids all came from low-income families. And then this classroom, most of these kids came from non-English speaking families and the boy she called on, I'm pretty sure came from a family that spoke Spanish. And he said, well, ancient Greece was unique because they didn't have fertile soil and they weren't near, you know, they were surrounded by the ocean. And yeah, I mean, you know, yeah, they can think in abstract terms, but you've got to give them something to go on and ask right. them questions that engage them, you know, and 
they, these kids, the second graders were incredibly engaged, way more engaged than those kids learning about, supposedly learning about the difference between a caption and a subtitle. And by the way, I saw it when these kids, these second graders had been in first grade, I had sat in on a class that they were in and the te their wonderful teacher who was teaching them about ancient Egypt and mummies. And she was projecting a National Geographic book about mummies and boy, were these kids fascinated. And she said, oh, and by the way, you see this description of this photograph that's called the caption. And then she, you know, she moved on to talking about mummies because that's what they were interested in. But they can, they can also learn about what a caption is. It doesn't have to be the focus of the lesson. Definitely. Um, one of the things, I mean, you, you, you brought up the term already. And one of the things I definitely wanted to talk about was in your book too, I appreciated your discussion of core curriculum. Um, and the theory behind it versus what it necessarily became. And some of the core knowledge. I'm sorry. Core knowledge. Language yes. Yeah. Yes. Sorry. Um, everybody here calls it core curriculum. It's probably a Texas thing. I don't know. <laughs> um, the I you know I, I admittedly I didn't know very much about it, and so I'd always been very anti all of that. And once I through reading your book and understanding the intent behind it versus necessarily what it became at the end, I developed a deeper appreciation for it. And um, I wondered if you could kind of explain that to people. I'm not sure what you mean by what it became at the end and, you know, like, um, I, sorry, how it originated and Right. How it originated, I mean, the intent behind it was to have standards across the whole country sort of that matched, right? And oh, then... Oh, we're talking, we're talking about the Common Core. Yes, Common Core. <laughs> yes. I mean, you know, it is... Sorry. Unfortunate ...that there's this word core that shows up in both of them. So that's very <laughs> core knowledge, language, arts curriculum. So, right, Common Core, which is not a curriculum. Um, right. I would not define it as a curriculum. Um and I think that is one of the most common misconceptions about it. It is, I think, probably one of the least understood education initiatives uh, of modern times. <laughs> but um, so, yeah, so I can talk a little about that. Um, you know, I, I, I think the way it started was, um, well, it really goes back to you know, back to the 80s and the beginning of the modern education reform movement. And this feeling it, at the beginning, it was like, well, we're, we're not competitive against other countries. We're coming out sort of not at the top of these international tests and we need to do something about that. And so they um, got the standards movement, which the idea was, well, the states will, we're gonna require the states to set their own standards and especially reading and math. Um, and then they'll come up with their own tests related to those standards. And of course, you know, if you put the fox in charge of that hen house, um, so they, they set, they had not such great standards and they set their tests, you know, proficiency standard low so that they looked good. So then the, the, the we need something common. We need, we need something that, that's gonna be higher standards and we need more rigorous tests attached to those standards, but, because of things that had happened earlier um, in the 80s, they wanted to steer clear of any content because there had been this whole debacle over 
something called the National History Standards, um, which did try to sort of, you know, specify what kind of what history content kids should learn at every grade level. Um, and that went down for political reasons uh, to crushing defeat. So the people who were working on the Common Core from the very beginning felt we got to steer clear of content if we want this to be politically acceptable. And they chose reading and math because they thought those were the two subjects where you didn't need to specify content. They were just a bunch of skills. Well, that's really not true, especially for reading. And I mean, math is a whole different animal. It's like, it's, it's a much more closed universe of concepts, but this is, you know, it didn't start with the common core because they looked at state reading standards and they saw, they said things like, students will be able to, you know, make inferences. Students will be able to find the main idea. That's what you get. And it doesn't say what text they should be reading really. It might say folk tales, you know, something. Um, and so they thought, okay, so that's what we'll do. And the, the, the problem is that teachers look at those standards and, and they're trained to teach the standards. That could work if the standards specified content, but when the standards don't and they think, okay, to teach the standards, we just got to teach the main idea, which is what they had been doing. They looked at those common core standards and they seemed like a list of skills. And some of them looked like new skills, like connecting claims to evidence in text or close reading of complex text. And they thought, okay, so we just need to teach those as skills. But that approach works. And the other message they got about the Common Core, which was very well-intentioned, was we have to teach more nonfiction because the elementary level kids were just getting simple fiction and that wasn't preparing them for what was gonna come later. Um, and so there had been, so, so teachers really just looked at the standards and thought, okay, this is what we need to teach. But it really doesn't, you cannot teach the skill of reading, you know, close reading of complex text. I mean, you know, what text you're reading and whether you have the background knowledge to understand it is gonna make a huge difference. And that got lost. Behind the scenes, uh, there had been, so, so David Coleman was the sort of lead, he doesn't like to be called this, but he really was the lead author of the, the Common Core Literacy Standards. And, and he was a big fan of E.D. Hirsch. So E.D. Hirsch wrote a book in 1987 called Cultural Literacy that said many of the things, same things that I say in the knowledge gap about how important it was to build knowledge, especially for kids who aren't acquiring academic knowledge at home. And E.D. Hirsch, you know, he got a copy of an early draft of the Common Core Standards and he ended up saying to David Comey, you know, you're, you're not talking about the need to build knowledge, build academic knowledge through a coherent, content-rich curriculum. And so what happened, and David Coleman said, oh, okay, you have a point. And so they added some stuff in the supplemental materials to the Common Core that said, oh, by the way, if you want kids to meet these standards, you really need to adopt a content-rich, coherent, knowledge-building curriculum that begins in elementary school. But nobody read, really virtually nobody read that supplemental material. I mean, the way people access the Common Core Standards is usually online. And so it's not like you even have a book or anything. And, and you know, so you're not gonna read the supplemental materials if you're busy. You wanna know what you're supposed to do, you go to the standard. So what has happened with the Common Core? The Common Core um, Literacy Standards, among its goals were to get away from this whole system of leveled reading where kids are you know, reading books on random topics that are easy for them to read on their own. And, how are they ever gonna acquire the knowledge they need to read more complex texts? 
and, um, and to get away from this idea of all we're doing is teaching comprehension skills and strategies. But what happened in most places, not all, but most places was after the Common Core, teachers thought instruction, literacy instruction should be even more skills focused than before. And they also have continued to use leveled reading and they've introduced it more at higher grade levels because these kids are not getting the background knowledge they need to read high school level text. So, but I would say the other thing, the, it's, this is important to understand, the other thing that happened possibly as a result of Common Core is some people did get that message a minority that you have to build knowledge through a co coherent content-rich curriculum. And so we have gotten now the, the creation of maybe six or eight, I would say pretty good, they're all different, con but content-rich curricula that really do try to build kids' knowledge starting in the early grades. Um, and none of them is perfect. And one of them is core knowledge language arts, which is the oldest of them and uh, the one that I talk about most in the book because it was really the only one that existed in 2016, 17 when I was doing the research. So that's the, the, the upside of the Common Core is it led to, to the creation of those curricula, but there have been downsides too, yeah. unintentional. So your, your book is so rich in information and I know I know your beliefs in content-rich curriculum, and I know your understanding of writing instruction. If you were to present to a group of district leaders, what, like, I mean, may, maybe there's a conference and there's a, there's a bunch of superintendents and maybe they do, maybe they don't know about any of this. How, what, what would you say to try to, I mean, because our audience is parents, you know, and these parents are speaking in front of their school boards and trying to sway their, the teachers that they interact with, et cetera. So what, you know, what advice would you give? How would you frame, how do we, how do we change the direction that we're going in? Because the, the path that we're on clearly isn't the right path. How do we put ourselves on the right footing? How do we get there? Well, that's, you know, that's a tough question. Um, it is. <laughs> I actually have done a number of presentations to the kind of audience you're describing, but they've usually, they've usually invited me <laughs> to, find it, to hear it. And it's, you know, it's very, I have spoken, you know, to audiences that were less like on board already. And yeah. that it, it can be more difficult because this system that, you know, I describe is very deeply entrenched. And um, a lot of people are not just, you know, financially invested in it, but emotionally invested in it. If yes. you have been teaching in a certain way or, you know, training teachers in a certain way or supervising teachers in a certain way for years in the sincere belief that you are helping children. And then somebody comes along and says, no, no, wait a minute. You've actually been holding them back. That's a very difficult message to hear. And all of us as human beings are going to raise defenses against hearing it. 100%. So it is not necessarily easy to convince skeptics. I mean, I think it is important to talk about the scientific evidence about how reading comprehension works. Um, there is a lot of it going back a long ways now showing, I mean, cognitive scientists, like psychologists, neuroscientists know about this. Um, educators, 
don't usually because it's not, it hasn't penetrated schools of education, but there's all this research showing that, first of all, if, if people have back, more background knowledge about a topic, like say baseball, they're going to be better able to understand text on that topic. And also evidence showing that the more general academic knowledge and vocabulary people have, the better general comprehenders they are of text in, in general. What we haven't had so much of until recently are studies showing that if you build kids' academic knowledge and vocabulary about you know, specific topics in a curriculum like Cornell's language arts or one of the others, and then you give them a standardized te reading test, reading comprehension test that covers completely different topics, it's been kind of hard to show that building their knowledge of those topics generalizes to a standardized reading comprehension. It takes years to build that kind of, you know, that critical mass of academic knowledge and vocabulary. But recently we, we have had some studies, mostly, well, there were two studies with kindergartners showing that even after a year or less, it does have an effect on building their knowledge through a, a coherent curriculum does boost standardized reading comprehension test scores. Of course, you, you know, if you give a reading comprehension test to a kindergartner, you're not going to be assuming a whole lot of academic knowledge and vocabulary. So it's easier to see it there. But the, you know, if we continue doing that, we should also see results at higher grade levels. Um, so I think you can start with you know, explaining the science. And these are not generally applicable skills, finding the main idea. It's not like playing tennis or riding a bike, you just get good at it and you can do it on any tennis court or any bike. It's going to depend to a large extent on what you're reading and how much knowledge you can bring to it. But I think, you know, a lot of, you know, the science will only get you so far if you're dealing with somebody who's skeptical because especially in education, there are, you know, experts on, you can, you can come up with an expert to support whichever position you want. And as I said, these beliefs about how to approach teaching in general are very deeply entrenched. And there's sort of a, a longstanding prejudice against the idea of a teacher standing in front of kids and imparting information. It's, it's thought to be much better to let kids just sort of explore and discover, you know, learn through inquiry and discovery. That doesn't work very well when kids are starting without much knowledge of the topic. Um, and, but it, it's, so it, it, but it does lead people to think, well, it's much better to just give them the skill of finding the main idea and then they can acquire their own knowledge. We don't have to be the sage on the stage imparting it. So, so the, you know, there's, there's that prejudice you kind of have to overcome, but, you know, so I think explaining these things is a, is a way to start, but I think what really convinces skeptics or can convince skeptics is seeing what this looks like in action. And, and in Texas, there are now a number of places, districts in Texas, I think, I know of one, Aldean, which is right on the, partly in Houston. They're from, I haven't been there, but they've been a real leader uh, in um, advocating for and implementing this kind of curriculum that I'm talking about. So one thing would be to go visit those, you know, I mean, I know there's a pandemic on, but if you can go, you know, see what it looks like in those classrooms. Talk to teachers in that district. Talk to administrators in this district. 
you know, it, it, I, when I have talked to teachers and administrators who have gone to visit maybe a neighboring school district and they've seen, hey, the kids actually really like this. The teachers really like it. The parents love it. And they often come back and say, we've, we've got to try this. I love the expression sage on the stage. I absolutely love that. Um, my, my issue with the argument against the sage on the stage, though, in inquiry and discovery of, uh, by yourself, that's what an adult would do. You know, that's, that's part of what college is for, is, is that exploration. And, you know, how, 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 those of us that go to college, how many of us change majors at least once, maybe more than that, before we land where we want to go? You want to, I mean, so stage on the stage is don't be the sage on the stage, be the guide on the side. Yeah. So the teacher is supposed to be just the facilitator of learning. Um, I, I think that that sort of dichotomy that they set up is a false one, though, because what, you know, explicit instruction, which is the term that, you know, I would use, it doesn't have to be just somebody lecturing and just, right. you know, the, the concept is, oh, and these kids are just passively sitting there and you're, you know, you're trying to fill up their brains with this information and that's not going to work. That, that's not what anybody is advocating. Right. Um, it, it's not, it's, it's not like, okay, we're just going to dump information on kids. And then years later, they can think about it and analyze it and inquire and discover. No, I mean, like this second grade class I was following, there was inquiry and discovery going on. It was just that they were getting the information they, they needed to be able to engage in, in some inquiry and discovery. And inquiry and discovery didn't mean hands-on, you know, creating projects, whatever necessarily, you know, you can do some of that, but it could mean writing a sentence, you know, drawing on information that you've just acquired. And that, you know, you're, you're inquiring when you're doing that, but I would, I wasn't there this day, but one of the stories I tell, which I think shows that, that there's not this separate, really clear separation between getting information and sort of inquiring and thinking about it and discovering, you know, different aspects to a problem. So they were learning, one of the things they were learning about was Alexander the Great. And uh, one day the teacher, gave, and you know, they had learned quite a bit about Alexander the Great, what he did. And the teacher told me that one day she asked the question, so was Alexander the Great's ambitious nature an inspiration to his followers or a flaw? Which, you know, is pretty sophisticated for second graders. And they apparently had a very thoughtful discussion. I mean, they, you know, they said, well, it was bad that he invaded other people's countries. And she said, well, you might not feel that way if you were one of his followers. I mean, so they were inquiring, they were discovering. And then some of them who, half of these kids were, from Ethiopian families, immigrants from Ethiopia. And they started saying, well, you know, people invaded Ethiopia and that was bad. So they were extracting that sort of general idea of invading other countries and applying it to their own, you know, family's experience. There were all sorts of ways that even, you know, with explicit instruction, kids, it's very, it's very active. It's not passive. It shouldn't be passive. Um, I love that. <laughs> I love everything you said. So, <laughs> um, what? So the last Nate that was published was 2019. Did they do it in 2021, or did the pandemic keep them from performing it? 
the pandemic has interfered. Um, it's been postponed. Um, I guess they're doing it. One hopes this year. Um, okay. I was I was just communicating with some people at uh, the board that oversees NAPE, and and that's yeah, that's the plan. And I mean, so that also everything's been pushed back a year, including that next rating assessment. It was supposed to be done in 2029, so now it's 2030. I would say 2029 just doesn't sound so great either. <laughs> no, but um, we're, we're, we're pushing our, um, so was, was, is there a question that's important to ask that I haven't asked you, or is there something additional that you feel is important to point out? Well, um, you know, I, I know there's, you know, there's been a lot of politicization around the whole issue of curriculum. And I think the danger here is that people will retreat to just, okay, we'll just stick with the skills because we don't want to touch content because we could get in trouble. Yeah. And I, I understand how teachers would feel that way. And, but that way lies disaster. Um, so we as adults need to be able to figure out a way to agree on the content that we're going to be teaching. Because if we don't teach content, and, and I would say especially history content, um, as we were saying, you know, it's really important to know where things came from. Uh, then, you know, we're, we're just going to be doing kids a tremendous disservice. So we cannot let, you know, our issues as adults interfere with the education of our kids. And you know, we, 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 can, we can do it. We don't have to all agree on everything that's going to get taught because, you know, parents can take some responsibility for what other things they want to supplement the curriculum with. But, you know, I mean, all kids should be learning about things like the difference between a city and a state, right? I mean, there are lots of high school students who don't know that. And the way to learn things like that is not by memorizing the difference between a city and a state. It's by learning about history, really, and where do cities and states come from, you know, and, and you just can't get that without delving into history in some depth. Yeah, Greece. <laughs> yeah, and these kids were learning. They were learning about the birth of democracy in Athens. Yeah, um, I I completely, I mean, history, history is so important. And, but, you know, I'm also a believer in the statement that if we don't know our history, we're doomed to repeat it. You have to learn from the lessons of the past. You have to apply them to how, you know, the direction that you're going in the future, for sure. Um, I want to be respectful of your time. Honestly, I could spend another six hours talking to you. <laughs> I, I very much enjoyed this conversation. That's great questions. It's been fun. Thank you so much. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to wrap up just because I, I truly, I could just keep going and going and going. <laughs> I need to like draw a line and stop, <laughs> but um, I would love to have you back at some point and keep, you know, there's, there's so much that we could dive into and have deeper discussions about some of these topics as well, but thank you all for joining us and have a wonderful day. Mm. It's here somewhere. <laughs> <laughs>